Um, we left off talking about how do we, uh, how is sacred space generated, and how is Jerusalem made sacred? So we talked about, you know, first you have to construct the space, then you have to consecrate the space, and then we're going to look at examples of this, right? So um, Jerusalem's made sacred by employing these, according to Eliade, by employing these uh, techniques, uh, and and you can see these these. Um, these ideas at work in the biblical text. So what we're going to do is look at Genesis 2 and 3, which is the Garden of Eden text. Um, uh, we're going to look at Genesis 14, with the, which is the Melchizedek text. And we're going to look at Genesis 22, which is the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac. Question? Um, isn't it the first consecrated and constructed? So you got to build it, then you got to consecrate. Construct and then consecrate. All right, let's look at some of these texts. The lighting okay? Can you guys see all right? Okay. Uh, so you have this famous text, Garden of Eden. If you've never heard the story of the Garden of Eden from the Hebrew Bible, here it is. In the, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So he's gone through all these days of creation. Day one, day two, day three. Yeah, there's two different creation stories. Genesis 2 doesn't do this. Only Genesis 1 does this. And then days 4, 5, and 6, you're actually filling up. So 1, you're filling up the sky with stars and moon and sun, which is interesting. Why? God created light on day one, according to the story, but he didn't create the sun until day four, which perplexed the rabbis, and rightly so. Uh, day five, he filled <laughs> up the sea, right? he put all the things in the sea, and day six, all the land animals, including the humans. Okay. Um, so after he's done all these, uh, and then he takes a Sabbath, then he takes a break, right? You're entitled to a rest. Um, then in, in Genesis chapter two, you get another creation story, which is a little bit different than the, the creation story in, in chapter 1. And it begins like this. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, before, or when no plant of the field was yet on the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and the water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Remember, in Genesis 1, he just <coughs> created them, male and female, together. Right? But in Genesis 2, you get the man being created first. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. And then what did he do? The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And what I want you to see here is that sacred space in most religions is, is of divine origin, not of human origin. This guy that, that was created out of the dust of the ground didn't say, hey, I think I'll build a sacred space here. In, all, in most religions, you're going to see that sacred space is appointed by the divine realm. Okay? God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight uh, and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden, and this other tree called the knowledge of good and evil. It's a different class. And then he put a river that flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and, and becomes four branches. The first is the Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there's a lot of gold. Then the gold of that land is really good, wonderful. Uh, 13. The land of the second river is Gihon, which we've heard before, the Gihon Spring. Right? It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. And then the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Syria, uh, Syria and the fourth is Euphrates. So two things I want you to get from here is it's hard to see Pishon down here. This is P-I-S-H-O-N, G-I-H-O-N, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. 
what I want you to see is that uh, sacred space is, in, in most religious texts, of divine origin. The god or gods chooses the sacred space. In the second one, you see that there are four rivers, Tigris and Euphrates we know about. The Gahon we've heard something about, but they call it a river, a mighty river that flows around an entire land. But when we get to Jerusalem, we see it's just a little spring. right? And the Pishon, no one knows. But these are the four rivers associated with the Garden of Eden. Um, and these are all in your, in your PowerPoints. So here's an example in the creation of the, the first place, if you will, uh, in the biblical text is of divine origin. God plants a garden and puts humans there. In Genesis chapter 14, we get a very strange, kind of odd text, or at least an odd figure. Uh, you get the story of Abram, who's going up to rescue uh, his nephew, his nephew Lot. And uh, on the way back, after winning all these great battles, he goes through this city called Salem. Okay? And upon coming through Salem, the priest king, Melchizedek, which, which name, the name means uh, Melchizedek is my, my king, and Zedek is righteous. The righteous king, or my king is righteous, something like that. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. And wine. He was the priest of, and here's the name, of the God Most High, El Elyon. He, he, was the, he was the priest, the high priest, not only king, but he was also high priest of this God called God Most High, okay, of Salem. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Right? So Melchizedek, the priest king of this city called Salem, which is associated with Jerusalem, shows up and blesses Abraham by this God named God Most High who he credits with making the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew Bible sees this as an early reference right, to um, the Hebrew God. Okay? But if we talk about the Tetragrammaton at all, if we talk about the name of God, I want to do it very quickly because that way I won't stumble over it all the time. In Hebrew, um, in Exodus, we have the story of the burning bush. Right? We'll talk about it a little later. But in Hebrew, you get the story uh, of God revealing his personal name. Okay. And the name comes out to be four letters. Y, H, Bob, W, or V, or H. Okay. And the name is supposed to be a sacred name. In fact, most, at least most Orthodox Jews, most Jews won't say it out loud. And out of respect uh, for this, I usually, you don't hear me saying it outside of the classroom. However, kind of a rule of thumb is inside of a classroom, it's okay to say for pedagogical purposes. Okay, So I'll say it, and the name is pronounced something like Yahweh. Yahweh, something like that. Okay. Again, most Jews won't say that name out of respect for the name of God, but in a classroom they do because you have to communicate what the name of God is. Okay. So you won't hear me say it much, but that's it's Y-H-W-H, or yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew. And it means um, I will be what I will be. It's, it, it's kind of this idea as I am that I am, or I, I am the God who can do things. I will be, I will be, you know, I will be the one doing things. It's, a, it's an odd verb tense. We don't need to go into that here. Um, but that's how you say the name. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times it's for him to chop. A lot of times um, you'll you'll see it written. Uh, they'll just they'll just make a tick. The name's actually uh, Yod. Hey, if you do it in square Hebrew, Bob. Uh, hey, right? Um, or Yod. Doing this. I just want you to see it so that you know 
know what it looks like. This is the tetragrammaton. Now, the reason you never write it is because, according to rabbinic tradition, you're never supposed to erase the name of God. So now if I erase it, I've broken a rule. Okay? But again, we're in a classroom. By the way, this is why you find old manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because, or old Bibles, old, old, old manuscripts. Because once you write the name of God in something, you can't destroy it. So you bury it. You put it in a room and where it's allowed to just decompose naturally. It's called a Geniza. So the Cairo Geniza documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some people say that this is where they retired old documents that had the name of God in it, so you couldn't, so you couldn't um, erase it. Again, it's something like YHWH or Yahweh, something like that. Again, I won't say it often, but I wanted you to know what it is. It's referred to as the tetragrammaton. <coughs> Tetra, four, grammar, letters, tetragrammaton. Four letter, the four-letter word. Um, a lot of uh, Jews will refer to it just for, they won't even say the Lord, right? Anytime you're in a Bible and you read along and you see uh, the word Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps or small caps, that's English code for this is actually the name of God here. But when Jews read the name of God, they never say Yahweh. They always say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. And a lot of Orthodox Jews won't even say Lord today or God today. They'll say Hashem, the name. So you'll hear Jews bless one another, Baruch Hashem. It means, you know, bless me the name. You know, it's like saying thank God or praise God. Okay? That's my, that's my quickie two minute on the name of God. Any questions? Yeah. Tetragrammaton, nice Greek word, four-letter word. And again, you won't, you normally won't see this um, written. Um, and if you do, um, you'll often be reading it, and you'll see it sometimes in my slides. But it, it's just natural. When you learn to read Hebrew, you never pronounce this word. You just say Adonai. You just say the Lord. So you'll hear me even reading it in English. I'll see the word, but I'll say the Lord because it's just natural habit. And again, this is just a respect thing. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't want to go out in the street in parts of LA and start talking about Yahweh this and Yahweh that because this is disrespectful. Okay. Yes. I heard that um, the Yud Hey Vav Hey Yud Yud were actually shortened versions of a longer. Yeah, there's power lots of names for God, and this is one of them, El Elyon. The yeah. question is. Was this a, originally a separate god or a separate name for god that got assimilated? Remember I said sacred spaces are like magnets, right? Sacred spaces are like magnets. They attract, well, so are names of gods, especially within a monotheistic faith. Because if you've got all the evidence of all these different gods running around ancient Israel, which we do, we have evidence of lots of ancient gods, not only worshipped by the Canaanites, but by the Israelites, then what they, one way to fix that into a monotheistic religion is every time they refer to Baal, Baal, B-A-A-L, or anytime they refer to El, which is another Canaanite god, you just say, well, El is another name for God, or Baal is another name for God, or Yom is another name for God, and you assimilate them just like sacred spaces into one god. And we'll, I'll show you lots of evidence of that. Okay. So here you have this king who comes out and blesses Abram, a foreign king, in what, what would become later Jerusalem, who blesses Abram. <laughs> Okay, so hang on to Melchizedek because we'll come back to him later. Abram abbreviation Abraham. Abram is Abraham. Okay, here's a great question. Good question. Abraham uh, gets his name changed. Abram gets his name changed, and this is a, a, a traditional thing in many cultures that when you when you reach a point of transition in your life, usually a, especially a faith-based transition, um, you change your name. So if you're Catholic and you're baptized, you get this baptismal name, right? They, they give you this extra name. 
Okay. Or when something happens, sometimes in high school something happens and you get something else. You get a nickname. And this nickname comes to define you, you know. So somebody in here is named Smurf, right? No, okay, Smurf, right? How'd you get your name Smurf? Uh, I was a freshman, I had blue hair. Yeah. And we went to a we went to the laugh factory and I was making fun of the comedian. <laughs> and he got all angry at me. Started calling me Smurf. Yeah. And it stuck. Yeah. So you, your name was changed. Yeah. And now it's not a it's not a thing of derision anymore. You're fine with it. Yeah. Right. So it's not just I'm Robert, but I go by Bob, right? Uh, sometimes you get a name, T Bone, and then that's it. Have you ever seen that famous Seinfeld? It's a great Seinfeld episode. We're trying to dictate his nickname. Anyways, in uh, many religious traditions, when something uh, something monumental happens to you, you get a name change, and it happens a lot in the Hebrew Bible. So this guy's name is Avram. Avram. Av meaning what? <coughs> Father. So my, my daughter calls me Abba. Abba, 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 right? So Abba is father. And Ram meaning what? Big or high. Okay? So his name really is, this is before David Ortiz, his name really is Big Poppy. Right? <laughs> just think just Big Daddy is his name. Big Daddy. Love it when you call him Poppy. Right? right? It's, it's, it's Abram. 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 Abram is his name. Big Poppy. Hey, what's the irony, of course? Abram doesn't have any kids. So he's this big, you know, this big Avram, right? But he doesn't have any kids, which is kind of ironic, which, which is another theme that runs through the entire Hebrew Bible. So later on, God's going to change his name to Avraham, which means Av meaning what? Father, Ra meaning big, and Ham meaning people. So he changes his name from Big Daddy to Father of a Great People, you know, Big Father to Father of a Great People, when he's given this blessing by God. You see the same thing with Isaac, with Jacob, right? Jacob gets his name changed to Israel because he wrestles with God. And Israel means something to the effect of he who wrestles with God and wins, which is interesting. The entire nation, entire people, defined by fighting with God. Israel, Israel. Um, and of course, he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're called the sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel. So, and you have this a lot in different religious traditions. Something monumental happens and your name gets changed. In the New Testament, you have an example of Saul. This, this guy who persecuted Christian Saul, and he has this experience with Jesus on a road, and he changes his name to Paul. Right? Or when you leave town, and you move to a new town, a lot of times you just, you know, the house of Saul, you can always change your name. Right? So when something monumental, some period of transition, you get a name change. Long answer for Abram and Abraham. Okay, let's talk about Genesis 22, the Akedah. Um, this is probably the most important, I would say, the most, one of the most important texts in Judaism. Original sin, Garden of Eden, not a big deal in Judaism. This, the binding of Isaac, Genesis 22, big deal. I'll read it quickly because it's too small for you. Uh, after these things, God tested Abraham. So he's had his name changed. He's been given this promise, right? I'm going to give you lots of kids. So God finally gives him a son, and now he tells the, now he tells Abraham, go kill your son. Child sacrifice. Ready to go. Which, by the way, would later be forbidden in Hebrew Bible. Which is, this is why it's a problematic text in the Bible. Okay. God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Yitzhak, right, Isaac whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, write it down, M-O-R-I-A-H, land of Moriah, 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Again, this idea that sacred spaces are dictated by the divine in religious traditions. It's not the land that you pick, it's the land that God chooses. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He set out and went on the uh, to that place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, so he tells the other two guys, kind of the servants that are with him, uh, you guys stay here. Uh, what does he say? Um, you stay here with the donkey, and the boy and I will go over there, and, and there we'll, um, we'll worship. That's what we'll do, we'll worship. And then we'll come back to you. Didn't really want to tell anybody I'm going to go kill my son, because God told me to. Right? Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, you know, I, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where's the land for the burnt offering? I think Isaac's starting to get <laughs> And Abraham says something very ambiguous, good politician, right? God himself will provide the lamb right, for the burnt offering. So the two of them walked together. And when they came to the place that God had shown them, again, divine spaces come from the divine, I mean, sacred spaces come from the divine realm. When he came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar. What do you have to do with a sacred space? Construct a sacred space. So you build this thing, right? And now you've got to consecrate it by offering some kind of sacrifice on it. And there he laid the wood, and then, surprise, he bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This guy is actually going to go through with it. He's going to kill his own son that he'd been waiting for for like 1900 years. <laughs> Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. And right as he gets ready to strike him down, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, since you have not withheld your own son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So you still have the consecration of this holy place that God showed him, but it wasn't a son, it was an animal. <laughs> so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, or the Lord sees, or something like that. And he says, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Okay, this is the akedah, that's the Hebrew word for it, the binding, the binding of Isaac. The sacrifice of Isaac. Now, by the way, in Islamic tradition, the story is also here. However, one thing is different. What is it? Not Isaac. It's not Isaac being sacrificed. Yeah. It's Ishmael. <coughs> so when uh, uh, when Arabs or when Muslims say we are the descendants of Abraham, we were promised this land. Right? They have a claim because they claim that they're the descendants of Ishmael, back up through Abraham. And Abraham promised all the descendants and all the land to Abraham. And when Jews claim, no, 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 we're the descendants of Abraham, and this is our land, they claim it up through Isaac. The story's told differently, one with Isaac and one with Ishmael. So you've got two peoples making a claim through, from God through Abraham to the same piece of land which sets the, sets the kind of the foundation for the conflict we have today.
We're the children of God. We're the descendants of Abraham. No, we are. Because when we get to the Quran, similar story, except it's Ishmael. It's implied Ishmael. Yeah. It's a different son. It's a, it's a, it's a, it was a son that he had with a, a maidservant, right? Abraham got really old. And God promised him a son. But he got really, he was getting older and older. And he goes, I better hurry up and have a daughter with some, my wife is very old. So he grabs a servant. What's the, her service? The, his her handmaid, because he had slavery back in, in these times, right? What was her name? Hagar. Hagar. And he let, lies with her, or he knows her. And, and by the way, never really, with rare occasions, say, has sex with. In the Hebrew, it actually says, and he knew his wife. <laughs> knew her intimately, right? But they use the word for to know things. So you'll hear people use the expression, yes, I knew her in a biblical sense, which, which means you slept with her, right? <laughs> uh, and the other one is, um, uh, and he and he went into her, or in, he lay with her, but it's implied that when you lay down, you, you're doing something you shouldn't, right? So, anyways, he had he, he had a child with Hagar, and then according to the Hebrew Bible, God says, no, 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 this isn't your wife. This is a servant. Send them off, and you get this great story uh, of Abraham blessing them and then sending them off, and Ishmael becomes the patriarch and the father of the Arab peoples and the Muslim peoples according to the tradition. And Isaac, the other son that he has with, with uh, his wife, um, becomes the father of the Jewish peoples. So two peoples making a religious claim to both Abraham and the land via this same story, which is why this story is such a big deal. But what I want you to see out of this story is that it's called the land of Moriah. Right? No mention of Jerusalem, is there? But it's just this far off land called Moriah, and God chooses the place. And that's what I want you to get out of this for now. Questions? Okay. I don't want to go to this meeting. Really? Okay, good. Alright. Not only is space sacred, but time is sacred as well. Okay? Time is sacred as well as many religious traditions. Okay? So for instance, after the creation of the world, you get this thing called the Sabbath, Shabbat. Right? We call it Saturday today. Basically the last day of the week. Um, and then you also get uh, creation of uh, explicit instructions for sacred spaces, like a whole bunch of chapters, Exodus 24 through 31, of the creation of the temple. Specifically, God is giving instructions. Here's how I want you to build the Ark of the Covenant. Here's how I want you to build the tabernacle, tabernacle which becomes the later on what becomes permanent, kind of the instructions for the temple. <coughs> so what's the idea? That God himself is directing how to create sacred space and sets aside sacred time. Space and time are not just something we talk about on Lost tonight, <laughs> final season. You guys are so designed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just have a lecture on Lost. Just theories. Now, we got to stick to this. Get paid for this. Yeah. Um, but space and time, right? Lost tonight, 9 o'clock. Um, so let's look at some of these examples. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and if thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of their multitude, and on the seventh day God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. 
and he blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Hallowed it. It. He made it holy. Right. Hallowed it. Uh, because on it, God rested from all the work that he was done. So God's not just about creating sacred space, but setting off sacred time. And as we get uh, further on into, we'll, we'll talk about later, Second Temple Judaism, you'll see lots of other documents show up, a uh, document called Jubilees, that basically sets periods of time. Calendar, calendrical text. So it's not just important to have a, a temple to go to, but you have to have s very sacred periods of time, which we call today what? Holidays. Right, religious holidays. We just had a couple of them. Right? Passover, Easter. And they both come from the same idea, same origin. Okay. Um, but these are sacred periods of time. Ramadan is one in the Islamic faith. Uh, by the way, I was reading some blogs. And uh, one very astute student noticed that we don't talk much about Buddhism and uh, Hinduism in this class. And there's five major religions, the three that we talk about. Why is that? Because they really don't see Jerusalem as central. It's not to take away or to discount anything from those faiths, but Jerusalem's not that big of a deal in either Buddhism or Hinduism. There is a class on world religions. Take that, and you can look. At, you can examine all the tenets of faith. But for this class, it's not because we don't like Hinduism or Buddhism, it's just they don't see Jerusalem as central, and this class is about Jerusalem. But it was a very good point, a valid point. Uh, look at Exodus. So not only did God create for himself a Sabbath, basically took a day off, but he also gave an order for the people that he created, according to the story, to take the day off. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. This is commandment number what, depending on how you count them. All right, commandment four. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So what, what are you prohibited from doing? You shall not do any work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female slave, nor your livestock, nor the alien resident, alien resident in your towns. Why? Why can't you do work in Exodus? For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth. That's what this says right here that you can't read. In six days God created the heavens and the earth. The sea, all that's in them, but, the, but he rested on the seventh day. And because God did it, you do it too. Okay? Now, the Ten Commandments are given again in the Hebrew Bible in a book called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy meaning second and normal, you know, meaning uh, law. So that basically it's a retelling of the law that you get in Exodus. Okay? And in De Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, you get the Ten Commandments again, and when you get to the Fourth Commandment, you get keep the Sabbath again. It is a little different. See if you can figure out what it is. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Why? Six days, pardon me, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You won't do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, the resident alien in your town, um, so that your male and female slave can rest as well. Why? Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the seventh day. The command is the same. Don't work on the seventh day. The reason is different. In Exodus, the reason for keeping the Sabbath is creation. You don't work on the seventh day because God rested on the seventh day. But in Deuteronomy, the reason given is different. You don't work on the seventh day because you used to be slaves and you had to work every day. 
but now it's because God has pulled you out of Egypt. That, that episode is called the Exodus. Because he's done this, you take one day and don't work. Basically worship him on that day. Thank him for pulling you out of Egypt. Okay? So that's that's the difference. The command is the same, but the reason for the command is different. But again, it's two examples of sacred time or a space uh, you know, in time. Okay, moving on. Um, so we've talked about constructing sacred space. We've talked about consecrating sacred space. Now let's quickly look at ideas in Jerusalem of the center of the world, or Axis Mundi, this place where heaven and earth connect. Axis Mundi. Let's look at a couple of texts. Uh, one is we've looked at the Garden of Eden, right? Um, we've looked at this text a little bit. Um, Genesis 22, which is paralleled in Chronicles. When you read the books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, it retells a lot of the Bible. Okay, so Chronicles will retell uh, Kings, for instance. It'll, it'll, it'll tell a lot of these different stories. So you're going to see me a lot saying, by the way, this is parallel in Chronicles, and given different reasons, especially in Samuel and Kings. You'll see that just repeated, kind of like you see in the New Testament, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, and that was a great story. And then you read Mark, and it's like, wait, he's telling the story again, and you read Mark, and it's like, okay, that was a good story. And you get to Luke, and it's like, what? It's the same story again, and then they do it four times, right? Chronicles retells parts of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and we're going to look at that as a cosmic mountain, as a place of prayer. First Chronicles 21 and 22 talk about Jerusalem as a place of prayer. So not only is it a sacred space and a sacred time, but this is where you go to talk to God. Which is an interesting concept, because many people today can pray from wherever they want, right? Right? Islam, five times a day, what are you supposed to do? Pray. You have to go to a certain place, like you have to point a certain direction. You're supposed to. But you don't necessarily have to go to a certain place, although many people do. And some people go to church to pray and won't pray. But for, for most people, you can pray anywhere, right? But here you have a place set aside for prayer. And then we'll talk a little bit about the underworld, okay? So let's look at Jerusalem in text, uh, and then I'll show you some pictures, and we'll finish up uh, Jerusalem as a sacred space. Any questions? I mentioned in Exodus 24 through 31 that God gives specific instructions to, now this guy's name is Moses. Moses is the great lawgiver of Israel. Okay. Um, and, he, and he's talking about a mountain. Now, what mountains have we already read about? Mount, Mount Zion, right? We, we did that in the introduction. What else? Where was the Akedah? Moriah. Mount Moriah. Okay, so that was some other, supposedly some other mountain. Um, so now we look at 24. Then he said to Moses, this is God speaking, come up to the Lord. See how the Lord is in all caps here? That's how you know when you're reading an English text that the word behind it is actually the Tetragrammaton. Why else would it be in caps, right? So this is, this is the editors of this English Bible's signal to you that the text that's really here is Yahweh. But since we don't say Yahweh, we say Adonai, right? We'll set it off with caps so that you read, even in English, the word Lord, like, like Jews do. But it's not, the text really doesn't say Lord, Adonai, it says the Tetragon. Okay. So whenever you're reading an English Bible and you go, did they mistype this? No, they're doing it intentionally. Okay. 
Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Abihu, uh, and the 70 elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone, the chosen person of God, right, uh, will approach the Lord. The others must not come near. Because what happens when you look on the face of God? You're supposed to die, right? You look at God, you're supposed to die. And again, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible is very ironic. You have a lot of exceptions to that rule. But the, the rule is, you look at God, you die. You're struck down. Remember Indiana Jones? Okay, we're going to talk about historical sources, right? Indiana Jones, what's he say when they're, when they're opening up the thing? Don't look at it, Marion, right? Don't look at it. They're the only two survive. They don't look at it. That, that whole story is based on this concept that you're not supposed to look at God and live. Um, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord said we'll do for a little while. They left that part out. They only did it for a little while. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. So this is kind of getting the Ten Commandments, right? Um, everything the Lord said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Why? Because you have to construct sacred space. Some kind of commemoration. And set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So now not, we're not just setting up an altar. But we're setting up one for each of the 12 tribes, for the 12 descendants of the 12, for all the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. Okay. And then he sacrificed, he did, what did he do? He sent the young Israelite man, they offered up burnt offerings, sacrifice bulls, fellowship offerings, all these things. Moses took half of the blood of the bulls and uh, put it in bowls, the other half he put on the altar. So it's a blood sacrifice, okay? We look at it today as kind of glory, but that's, that's how they worshiped. Then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it to the people. So basically, he read them Exodus or Deuteronomy, if you will. It took a while, probably. And they weren't getting credit for it either. But they also weren't paying tuition. Well, they had to wander the desert four years. Oh, well. <laughs> um, read it to the people, and they all said, we'll do everything the Lord said. We'll obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, who, right, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. By the way, uh, in uh, ancient Israel, when you make a covenant, you always cut something. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for making a covenant is actually the word cutting. You always cut a covenant. What's the equivalent we have today? We even say, today we say, oh, I cut a deal with them, right? That's, that's leftover. You, you cut something, right? You ever do the blood brother thing? When you're in junior high, we'll be broke brothers forever, man. I didn't do it, but, uh, but you know, you cut your wrist, you cut your hand, and you blood brothers, right? You always cut and make a pact. The ancient way of doing it was you take an animal and you cut it in half. You lay the two halves over, and then you both walk through the animal. And the idea is saying, what? If I break my end of the deal, may you do to me what we did to this animal. What, how did they cut the covenant when God promised Abraham a lot of children? Remember that one? Circumcision? Remember that? Literally, you're, you're cutting. I shouldn't. You're cutting. This makes me queasy. You're cutting a covenant. The idea is that there has to be blood. There has to be some kind of sacrifice made for making a deal. Okay. Nowadays, we just sign our name. But when you can't sign your name, because you're not, you're not illiterate, but you're illiterate, most people didn't write back then. You cut covenants. Anyways, um, they sprinkled the blood on the people. They sprinkled the blood on the altar. Basically, if you don't obey this command, may what happen to you? May this happen to you as well? Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, uh, the seventy elders of Israel, went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. 
But God did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and then they had a picnic, right? Then they ate the giant pan. So here's one of these exceptions. They saw God, at least his feet, but they, they weren't struck dead. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written for their instruction. Moses went up. Joshua is his age. And Moses went up on the mountain of God. So again, now you have this idea that, that uh, someone, some representative of God, is called up to a holy mountain of, of God's choosing, not of, not of human choice. Again, I'm trying to show you the text that have this idea of sacred space chosen by the deity. In 1 Chronicles 21, some of you might choose to write your paper on this because it's an odd text, especially since we're in the middle of having a census. By the way, censuses are bad in the Bible. God hates censuses. <laughs> Why do you take a census? Taxes. Yeah, for taxes and for raising an army, right? You want to know how many people you have so you know how much revenue you're supposed to have in and so you know how big of an army you've got. And in the Hebrew tradition, in the, in the religious tradition, uh, you're supposed to just depend on God for fighting your wars and making your crops grow and taxes and all that stuff. So if a king takes a census, it's like he's not really trusting God to deliver for him. So census, bad. And you'd be surprised at how many, um, I don't want to say conservative, but how many fundamentalist people of faith from, from many religious traditions won't participate in the census, not because of immigration concerns or big brother concerns, but for religious reasons. Specifically, you're not supposed to take a census. So if you ever hear somebody objecting on religious grounds to taking a census, here it is, right? David took a census. God got mad, okay? So the angel of the Lord uh, ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. You need to know this phrase, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Remember the word Jebusite as well. We're going to talk about it here in just a minute. So David went up in obedience to the word that God, uh, that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves, right? You see an angel, you run. Uh, then David approached, and when Aruna saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, let me have the threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord. Why? Because God told him to, according to the text that the plague on the people might be stopped. God was punishing David and the people because David took a census. God literally gave him three choices. There's three ways I can punish you. He chose this one. Now he wants it to stop. In order to make this punishment stop, you got to build this altar, right? Um, sell it to me at full price. And Aruna says, no, 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 no. Just take it. Let the Lord the king do whatever he pleases. I will, give the, I will even pitch in the oxen for the burnt offering. The threshing, uh, the threshing sledges for the wood uh, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. But David said, no, 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 no. I insist on paying full price. I would not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering to cost me nothing. It's got to cost you something. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with a new theme, fire from heaven. One of the ways that God manifests itself in, in most religions, in lots of religions, is some kind of supernatural phenomenon, right? You know, a few texts talk about a few people seeing God. But for the most part, people of faith never see God, right? Now, agnostics will say it's because there is no God. Others will say, no, 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 that's not how God works. 
God manifests himself through the environment. So lightning and thunder and fire you know, from heaven, hailstones, and all these things in, in, if you read the Hebrew Bible are accredited to God. Right? Now that may be because a lot of the origins of early religion were pagan. Pagan means net nature. Right? You know, a pagan is there, the moon has to be just right, the earth, you worship Mother Nature, these types of things. And so deities, you know, you used to worship the sun and the moon, right, and the sea. You used to worship these things. Israelite religion came along and said, no, 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 there's a God, but he's not any of those things. He just controls them all. And when he appears, he appears through them. But you never see God. Got it? Yeah. It could be a meteor, it could be, uh, a, you know, some people will say it's a volcanic eruption. And you can try, uh, and you'll, I'll, I'll say this more in this class, a lot of people, a lot of these documentaries are on TV, a lot of the ones I've participated in, try to explain miracles, right? And in my opinion, if it's claiming to be a miracle, you gotta let it be a miracle, and you just believe it or you don't. Don't try to explain it supernaturally. It's not an etiology, right? This story is God just sends out a beam of fire from heaven, and you either you buy the story or you don't buy the story. You know, maybe it was a meteor, maybe that's how the tradition got started or whatever. But this, especially when you read the story of Elijah uh, on, on, on Mount Carmel, you know, the idea is that fire just comes down and consumes just what they want it to consume. Yeah. historicity when we talk about David and Solomon. But the idea is, you know, you can't prove any of these stories. There's no evidence for creation, there's no evidence for Exodus, there's no Exodus. Until you get down to the 10th, 9th century, which is next lecture, David and Solomon, you begin to see bits of evidence that we can tie to history. Maybe in, in Egypt you've got some inscriptions and things. But as, as far as the biblical history is concerned, you really don't have much what you can quote hard history. It's stories. And so how did these stories originate? Maybe they saw a meteor and they go, ooh, God must be really mad at someone over there. And, they even that. and these stories build over time to the point where God manifests himself through natural disasters. What, when you fill out your insurance form, right, what, what do they call a flood or what do they call a hailstorm that destroys your car? They call it an act of God to this day. That's how we describe things. Yeah. Um, how come in, I think it was like a Samuel version, it says that God is the one that told him to take a census, and then I think it's just right. it was Satan's. Once you get into the late, late, late text, like Daniel, and then into the Mishnah, and into the Midrashic, you know, all, the, all these Midrashim, uh, Midrashim are kind of stories told to explain certain biblical texts, they start to come up with, and I use this word, I think, fairly, excuses for God. They try to give reasons for the problematic texts in the Bible. Um, they spend a lot of time trying to explain why God ordered human sacrifice when God is against human sacrifice. They try to explain why, you know, God did a lot of the things that, he, that the Bible says he did, and they try to harmonize it and work it out. We'll get to those in a Take care of Bacchus, Dr. Bacchus, Cole Rabinics, if you want to get into those classes. Later on, there'll be a lot of people trying to explain these texts. But right now, you got to let the text stand. If it says fire from heaven came down, fire from heaven came down, you either believe it or you don't. All right, what I want you to get uh, an idea, though, is this threshing floor of Aruna is said to be a place where God spoke, where God sent fire from heaven, where God 
you know, appear, manifest within the self. Okay? Why is that important? Um, in First Chronicles, it actually says to build an altar on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And you're going to see in a little bit that um, the Jebusites were the people who lived in Jerusalem before David got there. So this is why David is actually first going to this place in Jerusalem. So now you've got the idea of the threshing floor in Jerusalem. Okay? Or at least near Jerusalem. Hold on to that thought. Then, of course, you have Matthew 5.22, which we've already made a reference to. This is a New Testament text. It's a Christian text. But I tell you that anyone is angry. Basically, uh, Jesus is getting a sermon, a big old long sermon. And he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you even get mad at someone, you're at the risk of you know, having some bad things happen to you. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, right, you fool, uh, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, pardon me, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell, is how we speak English. In the Greek, which is where the, where the story comes from, you get geena. Now, where have we heard this word? Heard this word, geena. Gai hina. The valley of hina. So here's the text that shows us that, at least at the time of Christ, the time of Jesus, um, you've got a reference to this place called hell, but the word used to describe hell is Gehenna, or Gehenna. Remember the valley of Hinnom that runs down the west side and the south side of Jerusalem, where they threw their trash, the, the dung gate leads out into there? Okay. So again, you've got this reference to some kind of sacred special place. That's not a good place, right? but it's a sacred space. It's, it's not of this earth. It's hell, right? Getting lost and lost is hell. Do? I don't. Um, could be. All right. We'll discuss it later. We gotta keep going. I'll make a thousand lost references. All right. Let's show you a few pictures before we move on to a quick uh, the Canaanite, the Canaanite lecture, which will be very short. I'm gonna show you. Uh, there's a couple of main sites in Jerusalem for each of the three faiths. In Judaism, we're gonna look at the Temple Mount and the Western Wall. By the way, we're doing Judaism first because it happened first. And then we'll look at Christianity, which we'll look at mainly the Holy Sepulchre. And then we'll look at Islam, uh, two items that are on the Temple Mount, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Okay, so let me show you some pictures of that very quickly. Everybody remember where we are here? We've got to figure out a way to get rid of these lights. <coughs> Okay, so here's our here's our uh, Temple Mount here, our four quarters, Christian quarter, Muslim quarter, Armenian quarter, Jewish quarter. Temple Mount's up here. We're going to be looking at um, the Dome of the Rock here in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and Western Wall. And remember, I left you last week with the fact that the Western Wall is not the Western Wall of the Temple, but the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. Okay. Um, Let's skip this for now. We're going to talk about it in David. We'll get to David. Here's a reconstruction of the Temple Mount. Okay. Now, we actually have a 3D virtual reality reconstruction of the Temple Mount that we're going to see here about midway through. Um, but this is what we think it looked like according to the archaeology. Here would be your temple. 
And this temple is built over a rock, just a big rock, an outcropping of rock. And they built a temple on it. Uh, and then, of course, Herod the Great built this. Built this. These are people here. Has anybody been to see this? It's massive. And if you see a documentary on history or Nat Geo or something, watch it. Because just to get an idea of the size of these stones, it makes the pyramids look stupid. This thing is absolutely massive, this retaining wall. Okay? So Herod built this retaining wall. I think it used to be just a little hill here. Herod built this massive retaining wall, this huge plaza up here. Um, went ahead and appeased the Romans by putting a massive fortress on this end, just so you can big brother anything going on at the Temple Mount, um, and then and then rebuild the temple on top of it, expanded the size of it. Um, when we do the virtual reality, you can see how, how tall this actually is. These are people walking around. And I'll try to bring it into this classroom. We'll just spend a day wandering around the Temple Mount from about 50, 60 CE. Um, the temple is gone. As we're going to learn about next week, David, part of Solomon, built a temple. It got knocked down by the Babylonians in 586. They rebuilt the temple. It got knocked down by the Romans in 70 CE, and it was never rebuilt. <clears throat> Today, this structure sits there. It's called the Dome of the Rock. This is not a mosque. Over here is the mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Okay? This is not a mosque. And we'll talk a, a whole lot about the Dome of the Rock much later in the class when we talk about Islam. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about it in just a second. This is the western wall here. So this is where the temple used to stand. Now the Dome of the Rock is back on top of it. Um, by the way, there's a lot of people calling for the rebuilding of the third temple. I'm not going to have that. The chief rabbi of, of Jerusalem isn't calling for that. In fact, Jews aren't even allowed to go up here. They're not supposed to with these. I think we talked about this. You don't want to accidentally step where the Holy of Holies used to be, so you don't go up there at all. But you get as close as you can, so you come to this piece of wall right here. This western wall here is now the holiest place in all of Judaism. It's called the Western Wall. It used to be called the Wailing Wall, but after the city was unified, they just call it the Western Wall. It used to be where you went to weep and lament the loss of Jerusalem. But now the Israelis control Jerusalem, so they call it the Western Wall. Okay. Um, you have to wear a kippah when you go visit, and they still uh, break it down, women on this side, men on this side. But go. And then go up here and see the, uh, the Dome of the Rock. They won't let you in anymore, unless you're Muslim. They won't let you in anymore. Um, but before they put that rule in, I, I was fortunate enough to get to go into both the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock and go under the rock. They have a little room underneath there, which is it's pretty cool. And I've got some pictures. You're not supposed to take pictures. I've got some pictures. <laughs> Technology is a nice thing. Um, anyways, Western Wall, holiest site in Judaism. Um, here's what it looks like at Sukkot. Yes? Dome of the Rock yeah. and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Yeah, how do they know? Yeah, I tried this one. <laughs> I tried this. I like Akbar and I said, you know, la la la. I started to do it and they just they looked at me and it's like that. <laughs> 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 I keep a book and they just know. Um, no, the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, one could one could criticize, you know, this happened right after September 11th. September 11th, all of a sudden, anybody of Arab descent was immediately sus suspect, right? Unfairly suspect. 
in this country. So one of the responses was, all right, well, we don't, we don't let Westerners come into our holy places. The, and then the, the reason is they're holy places. They're not. There are some cathedrals that you know, when you're touring around Europe that you can go in and take pictures, you know, Notre Dame and take your pictures. And some cathedrals say, no, 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 this is a house of prayer. We don't care how much money we're losing by not charging you admission to come in. This is a house of prayer. Okay? And that's what they that's what they did with the Dome of the Rock. You go there to pray, you don't go there to tour around anymore. And they, and they control it and they get to make the rules. So yeah, they lose a lot of money from, from tourists. But, you know, when you're talking about prayer and God and things that are important uh, to people of faith, money's nothing, right? So that's why how I got to go in, but now you can't. Yes? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have, I have a whole lecture on the Dome of the Rock. Um, it was actually built by Christians, but that's just a teaser to come back from the Dome of the Rock lecture. <laughs> the, the, the Caliph Abdul Malik, who built this, actually employed the best architects at the time, who built, who were happy to be Christians, but they were building a mosque, but they went ahead and built it octagonally, which is why it's not a mosque, right? Mosques are supposed to be a certain structure. This is octagon, but that's another lecture. This place can fill up fast. When you go for like a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, they still trump around in here with trumpet, you know, the, the shofar, they blow the shofar. You can go up there and, and see it, touch it, pray. One of the things that you do when you go is you write a prayer. Right? You write a prayer, you fold it up, and you stick it in the cracks. And then the idea is that uh, some chief rabbi, somebody, somebody very important comes along and Everybody else is praying up against this wall, right? But then at the end of the day, all the prayers that fall down out of the cracks, they sweep up and they pray over them and either they bury them or they burn them or they do something. But they dispose of them in a, in a religious way. Um, and so that was when you know, I was taught this. So my first time to go to the wall, I had a whole prayer written out and I ripped it out of my journal and I tucked it in there and asked for a bunch of things and then I left. Come to find out with the rise of email, now they have an email service. <laughs> you can actually write an email and send it to them. They will print out the email, fold it up, stick it in the cracks, and you can, you know, you can pray at the wall from a distance. <laughs> Technology is a wonderful thing. Um, so that's the tradition. You, you must wear some kind of ball cap or some kind of hat, um, and then you and then you go put your. your and these stones are massive. Big, 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 big stones. Okay, now. The Islamic word, the, the Arab word for this Arabic, uh, for this temple mount, is the Haram Sharif, right? The Haram Sharif, the noble sanctuary. Okay, and on that's because here where the temple used to be, now it's the Dome of the Rock, and we'll talk about why that is later. Um, and then you also have on the southern end, right north is down here, the Al Aqsa Mosque. The name literally means the mosque farthest from. Farthest, farthest away mosque. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Islam. And the Western Wall is over here. Okay. So this is not only a sacred place for Jews, it's also the third holiest shrine in all of Islam. Okay. Okay. So it's a very sacred place for Muslims as well. Yes? No, there's a lot of the temple wall is still standing. But that's in the Jewish quarter, inverted. It's the Jewish quarters over here, and it's it's said to be the closest place inside the wall, inside the Temple Mount wall, um, without going up on top. So it's as close it's as close to the you know the Holy of Holies that one can get 
without going up on the temple. Okay. Um, here's a, an aerial view of the Dome of the Rock. This is the symbol of Jerusalem now, right? It's the, it sits right where the temple used to be. It's right in the center. It's golden dome, beautiful. It wasn't always gold, by the way. It once was gold, and they sold the gold and did it with lead, and they refinished it with some gold. Here's another shot of it here. Um, it had a lead dome from 691 CE to about 1965. Um, uh, we'll talk more about it. We'll talk more about it later. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful building. I don't have a close-up on this slide because we have to we have to keep going here. Um, but uh, in Islamic art, and this is a great study if you take an art history class. Um, uh, like Judaism, Muslims aren't supposed to make graven images. <coughs> Graven images. No pictures of a human face, no pictures of animals. Now, there are some exceptions. Um, there was even a period where it was okay to write, uh, draw paintings of the Prophet Muhammad, right? Uh, we've got a lot of medieval uh, paintings with Muhammad just running around. Sometimes he has a veil on, but you can see him. Nowadays, you don't ever, just like you never say the name of God in Judaism, you're not supposed to draw out of respect the picture of, now, newspapers, you know, free speech, they do this all the time. Okay, but out of respect, most uh, religious people don't do that. Um, so what they did instead, this this here is actually calligraphy. Calligraphy and geometry were okay. So you take the actual word of God, the word of the Quran, and you make it in these beautiful, you know calligraphy, right? These beautiful, beautiful fonts, and beautiful, and that's how they decorate this whole thing. I've got a whole lecture on that later. But the Dome of the Rock is a beautiful, beautiful structure. A uh, couple things before we get there. 691, it was basically one of the first things, once the, once Islam came to power and once it took over, um, ABD, ABDAL-MALIK, Abd al-Malik, in 691 CE, AD, 691. Uh, uh, the Caliph Abd al-Malik uh, had it built in 1099 CE, Crusaders, these are Christians, went back to conquer Jerusalem and did for a short period, and they converted the Dome of the Rock into a church. Uh, the uh, Muslim leaders at the time didn't like that. So in 1187, not quite 100, but almost 100 years later, Salah Adin, Saladin, we say for short, uh, reconquers Jerusalem and converts the Dome of the Rock back into a shrine of Islam. Again, that'll we'll have a complete lecture on that. Those are just some quick dates on the Dome of Any questions? Finally, in the Christian tradition, you have sacred space uh, established by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, some people you might say, this looks like a church built on top of a church, built on top of a church, built on top of a church. You're absolutely correct. The Dome of the Rock is so beautiful, right? And the Western Wall is so monumental. And this thing is just a billion little chapels built on top of one another. And inside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, you have this thing called Edicule. It's the actual tomb. The, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is said to be where Jesus was buried, the holy sepulcher of Jesus. So Jesus is crucified, they buried him in the ground, 
this is said to be that place. And it's a funny story on how they chose this to be that place. We'll talk about it when we talk about it in this period. But you've got this building. And since it is the center of Christianity for many faiths, um, it's a big deal on who gets to be in charge of this. In fact, this is actually the edicule. This, this is inside the Church Holy Sepulcher. is cut in half. And in the front is the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. The patriarch comes every Easter and does this thing called Holy Fire. And I've got, a, I've got an actual video on the course website of the Holy Fire tradition um, that you can watch. And the back side is actually has another door and the Coptic church, Egyptian Copts, Christians, um, are back there. And then, of course, the Catholics are over here, and the Armenians are back here, and the Ethiopic church uh, didn't know what, so they meet on the roof, right? They're off to the side. So there's all these people trying to uh, worship at the same time, and they're very paranoid of one another. They don't want to, you know, they say, okay, how about you guys come and worship at 10, and we'll come and worship at 11, and they don't want to agree to that because they're afraid that once they go in there and set up camp, they won't ever move out, right? So when you go in there on a Sunday morning to worship service, you will hear Catholic mass going on over here, <laughs> Armenian worship going on, cops doing their chants, and all around the, the, the yeah, Ethiopian churches, you know, Ethiopian churches in the back doing their thing. Um, and there's so much infighting and distrust among all these different Christian traditions that the key to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is actually held by a Muslim. <laughs> He's the only one they trust. <laughs> so every night he walk, he gets out, has a ladder, it's a whole traditional thing, you watch him, he gets on the ladder, locks the door, takes the key back, and they lock some of these guys, these priests who stay in there overnight, and that's the church always help. <laughs> Sacred space, especially when it's hard to find, there's not a lot of it, you know, it's a big deal. So everybody wants to be there. Here's, here's a good shot of the front of it. And again, I'm just going to turn the lights off for one second so you can see this is kind of ornate here. Okay, can you see that? It's kind of ridiculous. It's just completely adorned. And you can get in your line and go in here. I went in there and got my picture and all that stuff. So it's just this big, gaudy looking. Got shiny fire candles, incense everywhere in the building. Orthodox are on this side here. The main, kind of the main entrance are the Greek Orthodox. Um, one other thing I want to I mention um, is this site, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, has a chapel of Adam. Remember Adam from the creation story? There's actually a chapel of Adam. Um, and the tradition is, is that Adam is buried here. Remember, Adam didn't live forever. He, thrown out of the garden, and he died. And when he was died, at least his head was buried here. That's the tradition. Now, there's no evidence for that, but that's the tradition. And this chapel is said to be the center of the earth. So now, all of a sudden, you've got a tradition that takes Eden, which most people would think, if it was a historical place, is over by Bag Tigris, <coughs> and now puts it in the center of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Remember, I said holy spaces are like magnets. So now all of a sudden, Eden, the story of Adam and Eve, takes place in Jerusalem, according to tradition. Um, and the dust that the, the Holy Sepulchre was built on was the very dust from which Adam was created. So you're beginning to see all these traditions getting pulled towards Jerusalem. Yeah? Um, I think it's 
on Mount Moriah. But by the time we get to the writing of the book of Second Chronicles, Mount Moriah is now associated with Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem's just sucking in all these traditions. So by the time we get to Chronicles, Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, is the place where the temple was built, Jerusalem. Let's look at another one. Am I going way too fast? Yeah. All right, sorry, sorry. You guys know that the lectures are there on iTunes U, and you can download the okay. Psalm 125, right? Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved and abides forever. And you get this very pretty line. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time on and on and on forevermore. So now you've got a reference to Jerusalem being called Mount Zion. So now Jerusalem is Mount Moriah, and now it's Mount Zion, right? Finally, finally just write down Mount Zion, Psalm 125, it's like you write down. By the way, you can use all these all these references, textual references, in your papers. Right? Because when you read, when you do your next your, uh, your, your first paper, um, it gives you a bunch of examples. Some of these are, are these verses we're looking at here. Finally, let's look at one more. And then I guess we'll have to do Canaanite Jerusalem and David Solomon tomorrow, but we can do that. Or Thursday, pardon. Mount Siphon. Here's Psalm 48. So we saw it was called Mount Moriah, we saw it was called Mount Zion. We know that Mount Siphon traditionally is way up in the north of Israel, near Lebanon, or in Lebanon. And Psalm 48 begins like this. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Okay, so we're talking about the holy mountain. Jerusalem, right? It is beautiful, uh, it, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like utmost heights of Siphon is Mount Zion. So now we're starting to get this this tradition of Mount Siphon, this beautiful, beautiful mountain way up in the north, sometimes associated with Mount Hermon, which is the biggest, tallest mountain right in the north, is now being compared to, drawn to Mount Zion. Why? Because in a Canaanite religious text, one of their chief gods, Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, sometimes you hear people say Baal, is said to live where? On Mount Siphon. So as these religious traditions start sucking in sacred spaces, they can also assimilate the traits of different gods. So if you're a monotheistic faith, what do you do about all those people who believe in Baal, who live up in the north? No, 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 no. It's the same god, you see? So they start sucking in all the traits that are talked about. Baal, the storm, he's a storm god, he's a fertility god, now applied to the Hebrew god. And we'll even take their mountain too, right? And they all come into Mount Zion and Jerusalem. So this is a thing that we're going to see over time. Thank you. We'll do Canaanite. It's, it's literally a 10, 15 minute lecture. Uh, do David and Solomon on Thursday. Thank you, guys.